If green is your favorite color or your way of living, then Grounded is the place for you. From big environmental solutions to your own backyard, wherever in the universe you may be, join me, Melanie Walker, on a journey to a cleaner, greener life. Grounded, your window on the environment. And welcome to it. Yes, this is Grounded, the place where you can find out about everything green, whether it be things that are growing or you are being green and kind towards the environment. Now, the next voice you're going to hear is somebody that you probably will think, that sounds rather familiar. I've heard that voice because it's been around for, I'm not going to say how many years, but I know I grew up with this particular voice on radio, television, all over the place. And now he's a gentleman farmer. We're talking to Malcolm Gooding. How are you today, sir? Hello. Very well, thank you, Melanie. Just as a matter of interest, uh, the first time you would have heard my voice was in 1967, not you necessarily, but, but people out there. And that was when I recorded a radio commercial and a cinema commercial for Casablanca Roadhouse, which is an iconic uh, roadhouse in the old style that was s- situated on Saratoga Avenue near Hillbrow. Wonderful place. And despite the fact it was called Casablanca, I did the entire commercial with a sort of bogus Texas accent. And I was only 20 at the time. So, Texas Texan. So there we are. But at the moment, I'm speaking to you from uh, beautiful Robertson, 150 miles away from everywhere. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you've got a beautiful farm growing olives, and it is really, you know, I said to you when I spoke to you before this, whereabouts are you? And it's a kind of 15 kilometers from here and 20 kilometers from there. So you're right in the middle of the kind of the Western Cape somewhere. We're right on the edge of the Clane Karoo. The farm is located between Bonnyvale and McGregor, about uh, the same distance, more or less 20. So we're very isolated. We're in the mountains in the Refuse-Sonderent Mountains. Very beautiful countryside. And uh, I've had the farm for the last 25 years or so, maybe a little longer, and I've been growing olives here with a, a certain degree of success. Not a phenomenal success. I'm, I'm not going to become a wealthy man from growing the olives, but it, I suppose it, it's consistent more with the lifestyle of, of living on a farm where we can enjoy the advantages of this beautiful environment. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, we can uh, take pleasure contributing towards the environment because I think olives are environment friendly. And that's not necessarily the case with a lot of agriculture, as you well know. Yes. So, But let's take a step back. Okay, as I said, I mean, your voice is one that's, you know, I know that voice anywhere. And yes, I do remember listening to you. I was alive at the time when you started doing it. But this is quite a, a departure. I mean, are you still doing radio? You're still doing voice work. Melanie, I'm contracted to a few clients that I've been involved with for a number of years on an ongoing basis. They give me a small retainer and I do uh, in-house training films and I sometimes do their radio and TV commercials if this warrants it. I must say COVID has affected a lot of work in, in our field. I really have felt the impact, but it's given me the opportunity to record audio books. I have at present... Launching next week will be two books that I have read. One is the Denise Rates classic called Commando, mm. which is an amazing record of this courageous young man's experiences during the Boer War. It's a classic South African piece. The other one is the story of an albino boy who escapes trophy hunters 
And this could be a location anywhere in KwaZulu-Natal, Limpopo. Uh, He escapes trophy hunters and he's raised by this old Buratani called Omar. Mm -hmm. And the story is called The Rain Run. And and this albino boy, by virtue of the fact that he's rescued and he's basically an intelligent child, grows to be a phenomenal man and an example to so many. So that story is called The Rain Runner, launched on the 13th on a platform called My Bib or May Bib. I think it's under the Amazon umbrella. So in other words, it's part of that sort of audible stable and also the commando. And then I've also been involved in writing memoirs of my own experiences in broadcasting. And in time, I'm going to be completing a book called Confessions of a Broadcaster Ooh. or Compression. Uh, yeah. Compressions of a, <laughs> of a broadcaster. Uh, I think we could. Compressions, yeah. <laughs> com, com, compressions of a broadcaster or confessions of a voice artist. So there we are. People don't actually, I don't think a lot of the time they understand what goes into a lot of this. And I mean, I grew up with Springbok Radio and all of those wonderful things, the theater of the mind. And it's a very warm communication thing. And even what we're doing now, I think podcasts are really kind of flying to the fore because of the fact that people do like listening to stuff. Television, you have to sit and look at it. You can't just sit and listen to it. Whereas with audiobooks, with podcasts, with radio, you can do other stuff at the same time, which is so nice. Now, talking about doing other stuff, I mean, what led you into getting a farm and becoming an olive farmer of all things? I just want to take your point about there's a wonderful intimacy attached to vocal communication. Mm. And I think this is why podcasts are doing so well, why radio has always had a wonderful role, why audiobooks do well, despite the fact that it can be a form of wallpaper, it can also be something that draws you into the conversation and you become part of it. But I must answer your question. You wanted to know why I ventured into olives. I think it was a question of which came first. It was in 1994, round about the time of the democratic elections, and I was down in the Cape doing some work. And um, by accident, I came across this beautiful valley this 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 greater Robertson Valley, and thereby hangs another tale. I put in an offer to buy a farm. It was a magnificent farm in terms of its beauty as well as the way the operation had been established. It was basically a, a horse breeding farm. Fortunately, that deal fell through. Mm. Incidentally, the bank that was responsible for selling it, there was a bit of insider trading, and one of the directors ended up buying the farm. But it was meant to be. And then later... When, when I was doing the 1995 Rugby World Cup, I was doing announcements at Newlands in the opening match. After the game, and we were all delirious with joy, after the game, I, I went through to Robertson again. I said, South Africa has beaten Australia in the opening match of the 1995 Rugby World Cup. I've got to remember it by, by something historic. And I, I bought a beautiful small farm in, in the Robertson area, where I've been ever since. And then I thought I'd try olives. It is an absolutely wonderful part of the world. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I do know where Robertson is, not because um, I know about the wine or anything, but because uh, we were traveling back from Cape Town to Johannesburg in, a, in an old combi. And in Robertson, the engine fell out of the car. And we spent, we had to spend a day there trying <laughs> to put the engine back in again, which is why I know the area quite well. But I mean, it, it is one of those places where olives do work so well. I mean, we talked before, I was just saying about how if I drive down to Cape Town and we go down past Krafrenet on the road to Oturin, 
And there's a wonderful olive farm there as well. So it is exactly the right environment like you would have, say, over in the Mediterranean to be able to grow olives. Now, there are a lot of people who try and grow them up in the high felt, but there's certain reasons why they don't work as well, which is why where you are is absolutely perfectly placed. There's a very simple explanation why olives aren't successful up here. And it was told me by, by Linda Costa. Linda Costa is one of the gurus in the olive industry in South Africa. And she said to me, summer rainfall areas normally have high temperatures and high humidity, which introduces all sorts of diseases, pests that become a problem to olive trees. And what is so important with an olive tree is that it must have a chance to rest over winter, which is so important in initiating flower development in the spring. Mm. Now, if you take a place like Hazy View in the Lowerfeld, an olive tree will grow beautifully there. It will vegetatively, it will be spectacular. But not having the opportunity to drop below 20 degrees is most unfortunate. Fortunately, we have that here on the Highfelt. There's something that is part of that winter rainfall phenomenon that, that we can't emulate here on the Highfelt. So you don't have that opportunity for the, the trees to present with blossoms in abundance as they should in the spring. And you must remember you have literally millions and millions of blossoms and you might have as many as a thousand blossoms and it might present as only one fruit. I'm exaggerating, but the ratio is quite scary, mm. the survival rate. And that's why we can't really grow olives successfully on the high foot. I know there are people that try. And they sell a lot, especially the mission olives, because people want, there has been this incredible upsurge of people wanting to grow their own food and fruit trees and everything like that. It is very satisfying to be able to do that. But olives, I mean, yeah, not going to work that well here, which is why you see them mainly down in the Karoo through the Western Cape. What are you growing mainly? I, I saw, I went onto the website now because we're going to talk about your farm. It's not just an olive farm. You actually have it as people can come and stay there. But you've got Mission Olives and Kalamata. Is that right? We've got Mission Kalamata, Frantoya, Baroni. Kalamata, of course, are the creme de la creme. They're very finicky. They need a lot of attention. They don't necessarily produce in abundance. You have to understand the mind of each tree when you look after them. There is a, a Kalamata-only farmer in the Worcester area. Mm -hmm. and uh, he, you, you have to meet the man. He, he exudes a special patience. He exudes a special quality. And, and that is why he has success with Kalamatas. Kalamatas make a wonderful table olive. They can be processed well with lye, with salt water. But we grow mission. Now, mission uh, originally comes, to the best of my knowledge, from the missionaries in the California area, the Spanish missionaries that settled there three, four hundred years ago. They've created this very strong cultivar called mission that bears very strongly as well. And somewhere in its lineage, it does have some Kalamata. If you look at the appearance of a mission, but that's where it starts and ends. Its taste is different. And it's much better than a Kalamata in terms of pressing for, for olive oil as well. So the two favorite uh, olives are, are Kalamata for table and Mission for dual purpose. In other words, oil and table. They're excellent table olives, wonderful oil olives. And then, of course, we have Frantoya, which are tiny, tiny little olives, a little bigger than peas. I'm exaggerating. 
And But you have to produce and press big quantities mm. to get some sort of yield for oil. They're wonderful for oil. It's an Italian cultivar. You get a much better yield than you do from, say, a mission will give you, say, for 10 kilograms of olives pressed, you'll get probably just over a liter, maybe a 1.2 of a liter, which, I mean, it's, it's, it makes olive oil so expensive to produce. Yeah. Frantoia or Lecino, which is its first cousin also as, as a similar cultivar, also tiny, tiny olive, uh, it, it produces, it can give you up to, I've heard it said, uh, up to two liters per 10 kilograms. So you can understand why olive oil is so expensive. It's so expensive, yeah. So I always think when I think about olives, and um, there's that wonderful movie, Under the Tuscan Sun, where they go and they're they're picking all the olives. And, of course, she thinks, oh, olives, picks it out of the tree, tries to eat it. You can't eat them raw. There is a lot of stuff that goes into actually preserving them so that they become edible, first of all. And secondly, I watched a documentary on, on the Food Channel, I think it was, where they show you what goes into creating olive oil. And it's, it's quite a process. I mean, from such a tiny little fruit as well. I mean, it takes so much to make so little. It's a very prolonged process. And it's, a, it's an expensive process, not just in terms of the ratio of production of, say, let's call it dry olives to, uh, not dried olives, but dry olives to, uh, dry weight olives to mm. olive oil. But you, you need to have sophisticated equipment and olive presses today, it seems as though the Italians have, have captured this market. And, you know, the Italians have as many olive press companies, I suppose, as they have governments. <laughs> you can go into a small town and they might have three or four olive press manufacturers, mm. some sort of garages, others a little bigger with international uh, ambitions. We buy almost exclusively from Italy. All our olive processing machinery, they're leaders in the field. They're not necessarily the biggest producers. Mm. They're amongst the biggest producers. The biggest producers are the Spanish. We are very tiny. We, we, we don't even consume a liter of olive oil per capita, per head. If you take South Africa being a population of 50 million people, we don't even consume 50 million liters of olive, olive oil. In a which year. Is not a, not a tremendous amount, whereas the Italians will probably, each person will probably consume in the region of 25 liters, and the Spaniards would probably be in the, in the low 30s. Mm. So olives haven't come into our culture. We've got a lot of educating to do. Why do you think that it is that it's just a cost, it must be just a cost thing? I mean, so much easier to get sunflower oil or linseed oil, or not that you want to eat, that's for furniture, you know, all those different kinds of oils. Personally, I, I cannot imagine using anything else except olive oil although there is this thing where you shouldn't allow your olive oil to actually be cooked with because it gets if it gets too hot then it actually loses its efficacy is that true it, it is yeah and and that is that is to do with the corrupting of the purity of the olive oil and that's all measured in terms of oleic acid content mm. now the title extra virgin cold pressed extra virgin cold pressed means that the ambient temperature the olives are in must be 30 degrees or lower. That's where the term cold comes in. Extra virgin means it's pressed and you produce an olive oil. There's an oleic acid content that mm. is no more than 1%. Whereas the cheaper oils have very high oleic acid content and they in fact are unpalatable. And I strongly recommend people be very wary of buying olive oil because you'll often see discounted prices and then you'll read in, it, it'll say olive oil and then it'll say pumice. 
And pumice is actually the, the leftovers, the, the discarded, not the debris, the rubbish. Mm. Pumice is poison. What the Europeans do is they take this pumice and they reprocess it with other oils. They make it a tasteless and an odorless oil substance, and then they call it light. Mm. You must be very wary of it. It must, it must have the distinction of being called cold-pressed or cold-extracted, and it must be extra virgin. You can get away with, if it says pure olive oil, and then if you read what the process is on the label, but please be wary of it. And that explains why it's pricey and why people are not familiar with it. Mm. You know, it's something that for medicinal purposes for a long time in this country, it's only recently, when I say recently, in the last 20, 30 years, that it's come into our kitchens. Now, how many trees do you actually have on your property? And just as a guide, I mean, under these wonderful circumstances and, and environmental situation that you're in, how many kilograms do you get per tree? When they're in full yield? We have 3,000 trees, which is basically a small farm. I think to make it viable, you need to have at least six to 7,000 to be self-sufficient in terms. Then you'd have your own press. You've also got to have a very good connection with, with marketing. You must be well-established in marketing. But I, I'll explain to you. I have the 3,000 trees, and my goal is to try and get an average of 10 kilograms per tree. That is a yield of 30 tons. So that's uh, 30,000 kilograms of olives, which is my goal. Now, it falls well below the Israeli average, for example. Is Israeli average, they say, unless you can get 20 kilograms from a tree, you should chop it out and plant something else. And they're very, they're, but they're ruthless about this, but they have some <laughs> wonderful methods, as you can imagine. They cannot believe the abundance that we have in terms of water and space. Mm. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of Israeli consultants to our olive industry. They're wonderfully knowledgeable people because of their appreciation of the limitations of space and water. The water is the king. But maybe you just treat the trees too nicely. Maybe they need to be in like, I mean, what kind of soil do they actually need? Because you think about the soil down in the Western Cape, it's not the best soil. So I think people maybe give their tree too much babying. But no, we're very fortunate in our region, Klein Karoo. Klein Karoo is the preferred, uh, let's call it olive growing area. And our soils are essentially stony. Calcitic, meaning quite high in calcitic lime, mm. which is very characteristic of our greater Robertson area going through to Montague, going through to Barrydale in the Clay and Karoo. So the soils are good there. You don't want clay soil and you don't want sandy soil because sandy soil, although the trees will grow well in sandy soil, they're amazingly adaptable. The water retention of sand is poor. Mm. So you have... The opposite happens with clay. There's too much water and you have wet roots. They don't like wet feet and they die. They succumb. They, they're quite finicky. So it's very important. You, you actually can't leave them as you do in Spain and Italy because there you have 800 to 1,000 mils of rain a year in vast areas of that Mediterranean bank, including countries like Portugal. And they just leave things to grow naturally. There's, there's limited feeding. We have to make up for that shortfall. So an olive tree needs 20 liters of water a week. Mm. That's a lot of water for 3,000. That's a lot of watering. But now I've got a wonderful system. I've gone completely biologically correct. I've replaced my Eskom pump 
with a solar-driven pump, and I irrigate all 3,000 trees with a little bit of help from the sun. That's fantastic. It's I mean, quite it's fantastic. So, it's nice to hear that uh, people are thinking of different ways of farming instead of using, well, I wouldn't say electricity really and non-renewable resource, but using what we have got so much of here in South Africa, and it's really, really important. What other features do you have? As I said earlier, that I saw the article in a magazine about uh, people can come and stay at the farm, that there's little cottages and you can have families there. There's a, a rim flow pool and walks all over the area. I mean, it sounds absolutely idyllic and a beautiful, beautiful building, by the way. You know, there was a Cape architectural historian by the name of Harvey Fagan who put out a book, uh, must have been about 10 years ago, called Karoo Georgian architecture. Mm -hmm. And our area was, was settled probably in the 1830s. And the predominant architecture of that area was essentially Karoo Georgian. And Karoo Georgian, a classic example of a Karoo Georgian town would be Prince Albert. I don't know if you've ever been yes. there, but it's, it's just, it just represents it. You have colonial facades, parapet walls with various moldings on the top, some without moldings. It's a nose with two eyes type look. Yes. It was the Georgian influence that, that predominantly affected the Cape after the British settlers came in the 1820s. And it works so well and it marries with the Karoo landscape. And uh, so we have a Karoo Georgian house that spent a lot of time and effort restoring. And we have two other houses on this farm. One is called the Kastielki, also a converted old building. And then we have the Harpius Hase, which is quite basic. And we're doing remarkable occupations. And even now during COVID, we've been able to open up. And I think it's because South Africans can't travel. We are full every weekend. Mm. They can't, when I say travel, they try, I mean travel internationally. And, you know, <laughs> budgets, are, budgets are different now. You don't have to worry about the airfare. Yeah. And we've got Cape Tonians flooding in every weekend. We've got them staying on the farm. It's, it's wonderful. And then, of course, at harvest season, which is from March, including April, May, right through to June, we have people coming and they do their own harvesting, their own selection. We weigh the olives and they pay us raw money for it. And then they go away and they, they generally process. They generally pickle the olives. Mm -hmm. They don't take the olives. For, you know, it's, you, you'd have to pick too much. It's just wonderful. And that's where we have a particular block of trees, Baroni, which is, which is like a, they, they call it the Spanish queen. It's a gigantic, it's the size of a small plum. Mm -hmm. And it always looks wonderful. And it's nice to be done either as a green olive or as, as a pickled black olive. And the difference between green and black is that a black olive is just riper than a green olive. I was going to ask you that. I was wondering if there were two different it's colors on different tree trees. Longer. Yeah. One thing that I, I did find very interesting is that, I mean, you don't only have these olive trees. What you've been doing is you've been getting rid of all the invasive trees as well, including the Fort Jackson, which is a big issue um, in many areas of the country, the you know, invaders taking over. So you've been taking these out and planting something else in their stead. Well, we, we've got this whole program of rehabilitation. You know, the interesting thing is that the farm is essentially on one type of what would one call it a plant a plant covering mm -hmm. uh, and the and the plant covering that we have is is what they call refuse on their end uh, renosterfeld yeah incidentally if when you see renosterfeld chances are that the soils beneath the renosterfeld are very good the reason why the renoster bushes grow so well is because they're able to convert the small amount of rainfall that they get 
and that's why they grow so well. Anyhow, we've had a program in, in existence for the last five years where we slowly and systematically are removing the Port Jacksons. They are our principal invaders. We work it on a block-by-block -block basis, and we remove them, and then we plant indigenous plants, essentially. Speckworm, I can't think of the, of the, the botanical name right Cultula now. Cochilacaria afra. Oh, well done, well done, well done. Uh, it, it is just such an, an amazingly rewarding plant, and it's brought back the animal life to our farm. Mm. So we've been doing it on a, on a sort of hectare-by-hectare hectare basis. The farm's small. It's only 40 hectares. Uh, I would say about half of it is in very good fainbos state. We, and then we've got about, uh, let's see, our olive plantings are about 400 to, to the hectare. So we've got eight hectares under olives. And then the rest are invaded by Port Jackson. And that's where we're doing the, the, the replacement program. And it's just so wonderful to see this. They grow so quickly. And they force out any invaders. Mm. So within a period of five years, you can have a stand of speckworm, say covering a few hectares, that not only looks attractive, but it brings in so much animal life, bird life, animal life, small antelope. We've got Hreisbok, Kapsa Hreisbok. We've got mountain reedbuck. We've got dakers, uh, Stenbok, reedbok. So it, 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 they're in profusion and baboons as well. Mm. The baboons, it's its nectar to them. Well, I mean, it is a carbon scrubber. It's one of the best plants. And I think speck worms have really sort of taken off across the, not just our country, but I think people are looking at it overseas. Okay, so one thing I need to ask you, if we are ever allowed to travel interprovincially again <laughs> for leisure, how does one make bookings with you? How do we find out more about it? Where would people get hold of you? Because we haven't even mentioned the name of the farm yet. We call it Goodings. We, we called it Goodings Groves, but then we've just changed it to Goodings. But that's, that's besides the point. If you want to visit our farm, you simply Google Country House Bonnyvale. It's as simple as that. Country House Bonnyvale. And why, why Bonnyvale, or let's call it the competition, haven't thought of that name before, I don't know. But we've got, we've got Goodings Country House, and there it is. It's, so Goodings Country House, Bonnyvale, but Country House Bonnyvale is the easiest way of getting mm. a hold of us. And if we want to buy olive oil? People must come directly to me, mm. goodingmalcolm at gmail.com, or they can simply go on to Goodings Oil. We have quite a high profile on that front. And I'm happy to say that we're now selling olive oil in bulk. Again, because of the packaging costs and the inconvenience and the transport, etc., of putting olive oil in 500 ml bottles, which is wonderful for presentation, people do the maths and they find it is not economical. Whereas we're now selling a five liter at 550, we're pushing it up to 600 very soon as the new harvest comes up and the costs come. My neighbor does the pressing and he tells me that his Eskim costs have gone through the roof. So as long as the demand is there. So we, we basically sell five liter containers at around about 550. And we sell individual olives in 500 ml bottles. We sell the processed olives in the region of about 30 to 50 rand, depending on the bottle size. So we, our prices are very good. And then, of course, the olive oil in the smaller container, the 500 mil that you see in the supermarkets, the mm -hmm. popular size. But I would strongly recommend 
that you go for bulk because it, it, it makes more sense, you know. Yeah. Bulk is cheaper. That's a very, very good, good price. If you think about, if you're buying from the shops, I mean, they're a lot more expensive than that, funnily enough, for really good oil as well. Very easy to be able to just get hold of you, go down and visit if we're in the area, of course, if we're allowed to. And must, um, I can't wait to taste your olive oil, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be great. Homegrown, homemade. There's something about the smell of olive oil and it's transported through to that area and it seems to be captured. All the positive smells, the essences are captured in that bottle of olive oil. It's wonderful. Oh, that sounds, I mean, I can just see, I mean, I'm watching you at the moment. Your face just lights up when you talk about it. It's so good. Right, Malcolm, thank you so much. I'm going to send anybody who wants to know how to grow olives your address so that they can get hold of you if they need help. Please do. Please do. And and it's so good to, to see your face and to hear from you again. And let's hope that it keeps on going from strength to strength. And for the rest of you, don't forget, if you want to, you can grow olives pretty much anywhere, but you're going to have to look after it, as Malcolm has said. So get out there and consider growing something in your garden or on your patio that will actually do you some good as well and bring you a lot of joy and, of course, looking after the environment. We'll see you again next time. And until then, take care and, above all, stay grounded. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another episode of Grounded from Solid Gold Studios in Johannesburg. For more green ideas and events, pop along to Mel's Treasures on Facebook.